Good Friday finds its crescendo at Golgotha, the hill known as the skull, where Christ was crucified. Now, in a moment, Bill is going to come and talk to us about why all of this was even necessary. But before we get there, I want to look at the event that really launched this evening. Before the cross, before the beatings, the beard being ripped out, his back being beaten and bloodied, before the unfair trial, before Pilate, in which he was wrongly accused of crimes, before the heart-wrenching time of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, came a meal that he would eat with his disciples together. A meal that Jesus said he looked forward to sharing with his disciples. Not because of the menu, not because it was so appetizing, but because it was a sacred moment. And really, this was his farewell time with a man that he had spent the most time with, both in proximity, in, in spirit, in heart, in attitude, during his time on this earth. Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was in front of him. He carried this knowledge and he carried this burden long before this holy weekend that we're about to, to recognize. It was something he alone could face on our behalf. He had to try to do this. He had to do this on, for us. And at the same time, he tried to let in those who were closest to them. In the Gospel of Matthew, verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verse 21 through 28, it includes an episode that says, uh, that Jesus, from that time, began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. That term, from that time, meant that from that moment forward, Jesus made this a constant part or a regular part of his conversation. Guys, ladies in the room, listen, I'm going to have to go through this. There's something coming, and it's not going to be pleasant. But what could go wrong for a king? In Mark 9, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Matthew chapter 20 says, Now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside and said to them, We're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. He tried to clarify this to the disciples. The what, the why, and even the how that things were going to happen. And he used this last meal together that they would share. And it's significant to make his point. The dinner that they shared, the Passover dinner, otherwise known as the Seder dinner, is a religious snapshot of the history and symbolism of Israel. Now, they wouldn't have come to this dinner from work or from home or from watching TV. This was a, a dinner that was taken after a preparation of heart. It was recognizing what had happened to Israel in its past and also what was to come with its future. This Passover meal is a meal that includes readings and different wines that were drank. It includes storytelling and eating special foods, singing, and other Passover traditions. 
and it launches a week-long holiday, something we don't understand in our country. It goes far longer than how long it takes to open a, a couple of gifts. It's far longer than how fast you can eat turkey. This was a week-long remembrance of what God had done for a people. The dinner is held after nightfall on the first night of the Passover, or the second night if you live outside of Israel. And it's the anniversary of the nation of Israel's miraculous exodus from Egyptian slavery more than 3,000 years ago. This year's Seder dinner is on March 30th and 31st, the night we meet. There are many spices and herbs eaten during this meal that carry a lot of meaning. meaning. But I want to focus on two items in the dinner and then two practices that the disciples had as part of this dinner to focus on this Good Friday. The first thing I want to look at is the cup of wine. When we take communion, we have our juice, which represents the wine. But Rabbi Sil uh, Silverberg from Brooklyn, New York, says that there are actually four cups that go with the Seder dinner. Each cup symbolizes a moment of freedom from Israel, from the uh, exiles that they had, the first one being the Egyptian exile, then the Babylonian exile, the Greek exile, and the current exile, which is only ended with the coming of the Messiah. The fourth cup is the representative, representation, and the remembrance that a Messiah is coming to set his people free. Jesus told us that that cup, that blood is his. The fourth cup is that there can't be a deliverance of the exile of God's presence until there's a Messiah for his people. The second symbol that we'll see is the bread. Now, after the meal, there was some of the bread that was set aside, and that bread had been known as the bread that was hidden, just as the people of Israel were taken out, set aside, and in the desert. After the meal, this bread would be taken, broken, and eaten. It symbolizes the Passover lamb, the punishment for all of the peoples of Israel. The lamb was recognized as a payment for sin. It was a sacrifice that cleansed us. What did Jesus say? This bread is my body, broken for you. He was the ultimate Passover lamb, the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. The first practice that we'll look at is something that we usually kind of blow right by in our reading of these passages, but it's the fact that the, the disciples were leaning or reclining. We think, of course, after you eat a meal, you're full, you lean back or you recline. But there's actually heavy symbolism. This is why the, the gospel writers all capture this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all capture this. Because reclining is a sign of freedom. A servant, a slave, must stand while the others eat. But those who are free have the freedom to eat and recline specifically, recline to the left. When these gospel writers are writing this, as they're eating this dinner and they lean, it's symbolically remembering that they are free from Egyptian bondage. And we who know the Messiah are free from the bondage of our sin. God has given us a freedom. There's no more bondage. The final practice, which Luke doesn't record. In a moment, we're going to read Luke chapter 22. But the final practice 
is that a song is sung at the end, after the dinner, after remembering all that God has done for us, the freedom that we have because of his goodness, the provision that the people of Israel had in the desert, and that we have because of the cross of Christ. The final thing after the blood has been shed and the body has been broken is to sing a song of praise, remembering what God has done for us. We can do this today because God has provided the lamb that had to be sacrificed. On this night, 2,000 years ago, Jesus knew that this meal with his disciples was really all about him. From the day that the Passover meal was put into place, it was a foreshadowing, it was a pointing forward to this meal that would be eaten in this upper room by the ultimate sacrifice, the lamb that was slain for all of us. May we not take for granted the blood of Christ. May we not walk on the blood of Christ. Tonight, we're going to take communion together. We'll take the bread and the juice. In a moment, I'll call the ushers up. But before we do, I'd like to read Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 14. It says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be that he had betrayed. Lord, just like Jack said, this bread represents something. It represents the Lamb of God who sacrificed for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is Christ's body broken for you. You may take and eat the bread. This is the fourth cup. The cup that represents the exile from God's presence by Jesus' blood we're brought back near to God. You may take and drink the cup. Whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup you proclaim something. Every time we do it in service on Good Friday we're proclaiming something. We're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. What Good Friday is all about. Well, the upper room sets stage for multiple events that will lead to the brutal crucifixion of Jesus. 
from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And as what is about to happen weighs down on Jesus, Luke tells us that Jesus' sweat became like drops of blood. It was soon after this that Jesus was betrayed by Judas, one of his 12 disciples, with, with a kiss. And he's arrested, and while he's in custody, Jesus is blindfolded. He's mocked and beaten before the council. He's sent to Pontius Pilate, who forwards him on to Herod. And here Jesus is mocked even more, and they dress him up to mock him even more in splendid clothing. Finally, he's, he's sent back to Pilate, who really wants to just simply punish Jesus and release him, but the crowd demands something different. As they yell, crucify him, crucify him. Picking up in Luke 23, 32 through 46, we read about the death of Jesus. Two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they had came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved himself, or he saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, and they said, if you were the king of the Jews, save yourself. It was written above him, a notice that said, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the criminals rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon. And darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn into two. And Jesus called out with a loud, a loud voice, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The death of Jesus. Once when I was a little kid, I walked into my parents' room, and I found my mom crying. And I looked at her, and I said, Mom, what's wrong? My mom said, I'm just so sad that Jesus had to die. And as my mom tells it, I didn't miss a beat. I said, Mom, you don't have to be sad. Jesus died because God loves us. 
You know, I've probably heard this simple story from my mom a thousand times. I don't remember saying it. I was a little kid. But it obviously had a profound impact on her. And kids sometimes will catch us by surprise on the simple but profound truth they know about God. But I think I know why the story of Good Friday was making my mom cry that night. I think I know why the cross is so hard to consider. On Good Friday, when we meditate on the torture and the death of God himself, it leaves us in a somber and even sad mood. And just like all tragedies, it really leaves us wondering why. Why did Jesus have to die? Was it really the only way? Why did it have to be like that? Why is it so gruesome and dark? Why? Why? Well, as we reflect on Jesus' death and we anticipate his resurrection, I want to leave you with three reasons why Jesus had to die. And these are by no means comprehensive, but there are three reasons for us to ponder on this Good Friday. The first one is this. Jesus' death was necessary because God is just, but he's also merciful. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says this, He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Now justice is not a quality that we talk about God very much, but God is perfectly just. This means that God cannot allow sin to go unchecked. Sin must be dealt with one way or another. And let me tell you why. Imagine for a moment you are going into a courtroom. And this courtroom is having a trial of a person who has murdered one of your family members. And the jury, they listen to the whole trial and they deliberate and they come back and they decide that this murderer is guilty without a reasonable doubt. And then you get to the judge, and the judge is at the sentencing, and the judge looks at the murderer and says, okay, that sounds good, you're free to go. We would never call that judge good. It would be an outrage. But listen, our God is just, and he's good, and something has to be done about sin. The righteous demand of God must be met. And that's really bad news for you and me. Because without God's intervention, we are stuck with his justice. And although it's not popular to discuss, hell is a reality. The wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. And this is because God is just and sin must have a payment. But listen... God is just, and he's the God of justice, but he's also the God who is full of compassion and mercy. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Why did Good Friday have to happen? 
Because our status without God's intervention was death. And guess what? God didn't want that. God chose to cancel our legal debt. Now, remember, he is a just God, so he can't just wave his hand and forget about all of it. Someone had to pay in order for our sins to be given. Jesus' death on the cross was that payment for our sins. Jesus' death on the cross was a display of God's perfect justice wrapped up in his perfect mercy. When you think about Jesus on the cross, you should remember that your sin and your legal debt before a righteous and just judge who is God is nailed to the cross. So Jesus' death was necessary because God is just, but he's also merciful. As you think about the cross tonight, be thankful for God's mercy. Let's look at another reason. Jesus' death was necessary because God wanted to make us holy and blameless and perfect so we could be with him. God is holy. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Exodus 15, 11. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is none besides thee. There is no rock like our God. 1 Samuel 2, 2. You know, God's holiness is often misunderstood because we use the, whole, the word holy in a different way in contemporary language. But there's really two aspects to God's holiness that we have to understand if we're to understand why God needed to make us holy through the cross. The primary meaning of holy is completely separate. It comes from the ancient word that means to cut or to separate. And when applied to God, it means that God is separate beyond human reach or transcendentally separate. He is so far beyond and so far above us that he's completely foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. God is wholly different than us and unique, and, he, and it's an unattainable thing for us. The second aspect of God's holiness is moral purity. When things are made holy, they're set apart to be pure. They are used in a pure way. So purity is not excluded from the idea of holiness. It's contained within it. So you can think about God's holiness as him being completely 100% morally pure and unattainably set apart from human beings in every aspect of his being. What's so important about this is for us to know about God's holiness because what it means for mankind. You see, we are not holy. We are corrupt. We lie, we cheat, we steal, we covet, we break God's commands at every turn. We are rebels to the core. How could we even dare to approach the God of this universe who the Bible describes as holy, holy, holy? Listen, the truth is we cannot fix this. The truth is we can't approach God on our own. There is nothing that we can do to be made holy. This is why it's ludicrous to think that a good person would get into heaven on their own. 
We've already lost that game long ago. And there's no making it up, especially when you consider that God always was and is now and always will be eternally forever holy and pure. The truth is, we can't fix this. But guess who can? God himself. And he did with Jesus' death on the cross. Listen to this wondrous truth in, first, or in Colossians 1, 21 through 22. Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. That's talking about the cross. To present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Why was Jesus' death necessary? Because God wanted to make us holy and blameless and perfect so we could be with him. Without Jesus' sacrifice, God is unapproachable because of his holiness. But because of Jesus, we read this, the curtain is torn into two. The curtain between us and the holy of holies is torn into two. And so now we can come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive mercy. As you think about the cross tonight, don't forget how God made a special way for you to approach him, even though he remains holy. Let's take a look at the last reason. Jesus' death was necessary to demonstrate God's amazing love towards us. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is Galatians 2.20. It says this, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. The life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We tend to focus on the first part of that passage, but really, the end is just as significant. He loves me. Jesus loves me, and so he gave himself for me. It doesn't get much clearer than that. The truth about the cross is that Jesus loves you so much that he gave himself up as a sacrifice so that you could be with him for all of eternity. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Listen, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to, be, but to save the world through him. Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection is quite literally a rescue mission based on the fact that God desperately loves you. God is not up there disconnected from this world, just trying to keep you in line or having you face eternal punishment. That's not what he wants from us. God loves us. He is a perfect and just holy judge. But guess what? He loves you. And he chooses to rescue you from sin and death through Jesus. 
as you think about the cross tonight. And you think about Jesus hanging on that cross with his arms stretched open. Remember, that's because God loves you. Jesus' death was necessary because God is just but also merciful. Jesus' death was necessary because God wanted to make us holy and blameless and perfect so we could be with him. Jesus' death was necessary to demonstrate God's amazing love towards us. And so as somber and as, as serious as Good Friday is, please leave tonight knowing that Jesus' death on the cross is solely because God loves you. Amen?